We are at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to do a couple of verses in the middle, just a short passage today, verses 13 through 16. Uh, then we'll finish, uh, I think, this chapter next week, or two weeks. Um, but this is short because it's very difficult. This is one of the harder passages uh, in the Bible, and you'll see that as we get to it. But let me go ahead and read that. For you now, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 16. Read along in your Bible or in the uh, sermon outline that you have. This is the Word of God. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to your word again this morning. We find that we need to know about your word and how and why it's so much more important than our own words. Father, in the confusion of so many voices telling us what is right and what is wrong, may we look to your word for truth. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Once there were four preachers who held a series of theological arguments. And three were always in agreement against the fourth. So one day, the odd preacher out after the usual three-to-one majority rules statement that signified that he had lost again, decided to appeal to a higher authority. Oh God, he prayed, I know in my heart that I am right and they are wrong. Please give me a sign to prove it to them. It was a beautiful sunny day, and as soon as the preacher finished his prayer, a storm cloud moved across the sky above the four of them. It rumbled once and dissolved. A sign from God. See, I'm right. I knew it. But the other three disagreed, pointing out that storm clouds form on hot days. So he prayed again, oh God, I need a bigger sign to show that I am right and they are wrong. Please, God, a bigger sign. And this time, four storm clouds appeared. And they rushed towards each other to form one big cloud and a bolt of lightning slammed into a tree on a nearby hill. I told you I was right, cried the preacher. But his friends insisted that nothing had happened that could not be explained by natural causes. So he was getting pretty frustrated. So he's asking, getting ready to ask God for a very big sign. And just as he said, oh God, the sky turned pitch black, the earth shook, and a deep booming voice said, he's right. 
The preacher put his hands on his hips, turned to the other three and said, well? And they just looked at him and said, okay, well, now it's three to two. (laughs) And that goofy story illustrates a serious problem. And that's the problem of putting God's words on an equal level with man's words. But spiritual truth is not determined by taking a vote. Jesus' seminar to the contrary. In fact, even if a thousand people agree with us, it makes no difference unless we agree with God. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's why Paul is so determined here in 1 Thessalonians that these Thessalonian believers know the source of his teaching. He says that at the beginning of our passage today in verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And that's what part of today's passage is about, the word of God. Paul starts by telling us about receiving the word, verse 13, receiving the word. It is uh, well known, the most common New Testament word for preaching is kariso, to act like a herald, to make a uh, proclamation, a herald is kerix. The verb occurs back in verse 9, which we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. For you remembered, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to you, while this word we proclaim to you, in the Greek that's one word, a karuxamen, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And that whole idea of being a herald, a proclaimer, a preacher, proclaiming the gospel is the concept that lies behind verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, you accepted it. And there's a deliberate interplay in this important statement between us, you, and God. When you received, which is actually a technical term for receiving a tradition that's being handed on, namely what you heard from us, the apostles, you accept it as the word of God, which is effectively at work in you. The message came from God through the apostle to the Thessalonians, and it's changing them. And this is an unmistakable assertion by Paul that the gospel he preached was the word of God. Now, we're familiar with the claims of the Old Testament prophets that they were heralds of the word of God. Often they introduced their prophecies with sayings like, the word of the Lord came to me. And they often ended them with, thus saith the Lord. They all spoke in the King James. And now here in verse 13, we have a comparable claim by a New Testament apostle. And Paul doesn't rebuke the Thessalonians for regarding his message too highly. On the contrary, he commends them for having recognized it as what it really is, the Word of God, and having accepted it as such. More than that, he says he actually thanks God constantly that they have done so. 
and adds that the gospel authenticates its divine origin by its transforming power in their lives. He said, it's at work in you who believe. And so what we have in this verse is a clear indication of Paul's apostolic authority. He knew who he was, an apostle of Christ. He knew what his message was, the word of God. And now the Thessalonians know these things as well. And he uses two words in verse 13 to explain what he means. First he says, you received the word of God. That's the hearing uh, of the ear. It's objective like signing a receipt at the post office uh, so you can ex- get a package. He received it. He means the Thessalonians uh, listened intently to the message he preached because they knew it came from God. So they received it, and then they accepted it. And those are not the same words. Those are two different words. They received the word of God means it came to them in an objective form. It was handed on to them like a tradition. Paul preached it objectively. It would have been the word of God whether they accepted it or not. There is an objective word of God. But second, he says, you accepted it as the word of God. And this word means uh, accepted is most often used for hospitality, to accept a visitor into your home. This is the hearing of the heart, and it's subjective. Paul says his preaching was really the word of God, and you accepted it, not as the word of man, uh, but as what it really is, the word of God. The word of man does not become the word of God because it's accepted. We accept it because it already is the word of God. The apostolic word really is the word of God objectively, apart from our subjective attitude towards it. You understand the difference here. It came to them, it's the word of God, and they accepted it, they believed it. So it didn't change it, it wasn't any less the word of God, it didn't make it the word of God, but he's commending them. And it's a really, it's a key difference because it's very possible to listen to preaching but not really hear it and not be changed by it. It's something else entirely to welcome God's message into your heart and let it transform your life. And that focus here is crucial. You heard the message from man, but you recognized it came from God. You heard it from us, the human side, but you heard that it was God's message, the divine side. You responded not as if it were the opinion of men, but as God's word. That word, again, that word accepted means welcome. Paul also uses it in 1 Corinthians 2. Right after he says he teaches in words taught by the Holy Spirit, he adds, the natural person does not accept, using the same word, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. See, this is why the debate over the nature of the Bible is so crucial. If it's only the word of man... It's changeable, it's fickle, it's unreliable. But if the Bible really is the word of God, then it is utterly and completely authoritative. If God has spoken in the Bible, then what he says has final claim on my life. So the point of verse 13 is there's a right way to accept or welcome the teachings of the Bible when we receive them. 
Everybody this morning is receiving the word of God. I pray that everyone this morning is accepting it as the word of God. We should embrace it and welcome it because it is the word of God. It's God's truth. It has God's authority. It's the rule for all other claims to truth and the rule over all other authority. And we should embrace it that way. If it were only that easy. And Paul wants us to know it's not always that easy. But sometimes when we receive and accept the word of God, some other things come with it. Hard things, suffering, persecution. And we see suffering and persecution here in Thessalonica when this church is responding to the word. Look at verse 14. Responding to the word, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Genuine offspring bear the uh, traits of their parents. And the Judean churches are uh, indisputably the first authentic churches and the mother churches of all those other churches that were planted by Paul. And they established a standard by which all other churches might measure themselves. And so like them, the Thessalonian Christians are suffering persecution for Jesus. And if you believe the Bible, you're going to have some strong enemies. If you receive and accept it as the word of God, there's going to be people who don't like you. And here's the bad news. When Paul uses the word countrymen, he uses a word that is absolutely unique. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It means the people closest to you. If you decide that the Bible is the word of God, you receive it and accept it for what it really is, the word of God, then people close to you will not share your faith at all. In our case, that usually means family and friends. In Paul's case, it meant his Jewish countrymen. In both cases, we'll have to face the truth that we will know people. See, it's, it's bad news. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. We need to face up the truth that we're going to know people who will spend their lives rejecting the word. They will spend their lives rejecting the word. Look again, verse 14, second part through 16. And this is the hard part. He says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did, the churches in Judea, from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it is always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now because I preach through the Bible in an expository manner, that is, I preach book by book, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, you can't skip anything. You have to preach on the really hard verses. You have to preach on those passages that you would never choose to preach on. And this is one of those passages. 
These are some of the most disputed verses in the New Testament. With some scholars arguing they were added uh, later on and shouldn't even be included. However, there's no manuscript evidence that they were added later on. And the evidence that they're not original is very scant. And we simply can't use that as an excuse to skip over them. Although I discovered there's quite a number of preachers who've done just that. As I looked at other people who preached through, you know, they went right from verse 13 to verse 17. And that was really tempting. And you'd be surprised if I told you their names. The one I found who deals with these verses the most directly is Dr. John R.W. Stott. Some of you know that I'm a particular fan of his. I think he's probably the most influential evangelical in my lifetime, even more than Billy Graham. But he would be close. And so a lot of what I'm going to say comes from him. And it's going to take a little bit to get through this and to do it justice. So I'm going to ask you to listen carefully and not to jump to conclusions. These are really hard verses today. These two verses have been called the Pauline polemic against the Jews. They've been described as violent, vehement, vindictive, passionate, intemperate, bitter, and harsh. So we have to begin our evaluation of these verses by studying what Paul actually wrote and set it against the background of the most recent Jewish persecution which he had experienced. Now, also, Paul's statement about God's wrath is not clear. We don't know if it's present or future. It could mean it's fallen on them and they're now experiencing it. Or it could mean it's hanging over them and it's about to fall on them. It's just not real clear. If the first one's right and it's present, then Paul may be seeing the arrival of God's judgment in such events as the unprecedented, unprecedented famine in Judea of A.D. 45 to 47. He mentions that in Acts chapter 11. Could be in the brutal massacre of Jews in the temple at Passover in A.D. 49. It's described by the ancient historian Josephus. And in that same year, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome by the emperor Claudius. And Paul mentions that in Acts 18. And since 1 Thessalonians was written approximately A.D. 50, at the time, these were all recent, vivid events. I think the other translation is more likely because it keeps with the whole tenor of the book, which is forward-looking. Namely, that the wrath of God hangs over them and is about to fall on them, although it hasn't yet engulfed them. Certainly, we know the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 is still 20 years away. And if the tradition of such uh, predictions of judgment is part of Paul's thinking, then the Jews' continuing rejection of the gospel would surely make him think this judgment was imminent. And indeed, it was. Either way, Luke makes it clear in Acts 17 and 18 that it was Jewish opponents of the gospel who pursued Paul <coughs> from Thessalonica to Berea, from Berea to Athens, 
And then after his arrival in Corinth, and it was from Corinth that he wrote 1 Thessalonians, it was Jewish opposition which led him to take the dramatic step of turning to the Gentiles. And Paul sees what's happened to these missionaries to Thessalonica. And these missionaries and these Christians in Thessalonica as just the latest in a long series of examples of hostility to the Word of God. And the Thessalonian uh, Gentile uh, compatriots, their friends, were stirred up against this church by Jewish opponents of the gospel. We see that in Acts 17. It says there, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. That's where Paul and Silas were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And in Paul's indictment of the Jews in these verses, in 1 Thessalonians, particularly in verse 15, he accuses them of five things. Reminds us of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. There, Stephen said at the end of his speech, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And of course, upon hearing them, what did they do? They promptly stoned Stephen to death. And the first thing he says, his first accusation, is they killed the Lord Jesus. Now, to say such a thing today would be regarded as reprehensible, uh, anti-Semitic statement. And it's true, the Romans were also implicated in Jesus' death, and so are all of us for whom he died. Indeed, Paul included himself personally in this. And we should never forget that he once uh, said about himself, 1 Timothy 1, that he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Nevertheless, the Jewish people shared in the blame, and they said so in Matthew 27. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And so while implicating ourselves, we cannot exonerate them. So that's the first charge, is they killed Jesus. The second charge is they killed the prophets, which Jesus himself had accused them of doing, Matthew 23. Some of the harshest words of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. 
Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. This is tough language. They killed Jesus, killed the prophets. Third, they drove out the apostles, which seems to put the apostles on the same level as the prophets. He says that they drove him out of Thessalonica, drove him out, and that's one reason why Paul kept moving. He just went until he got someplace where they didn't drive him out. Fourth, they displeased God, particularly by rejecting the Messiah. And he's also pointing out in their hard-heartedness, they consistently reject God's word. And that comes to the last point, they're hostile to all men. They oppose mankind. And Paul explains their hostility to the human race in terms of their attempt to stop the apostles from preaching the gospel and to stop the Gentiles from being saved. And Paul saw this policy as the appalling thing that it was. The Jews had not only killed the Messiah and persecuted the prophets and the apostles, they were obstructing the spread of the gospel and the work of salvation. And again, Jesus had already confronted the scribes and the Pharisees about this very same thing, Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's pretty hard. And it's that last point is the one that grips Paul's mind and heart. See, it's one thing to say, it's not for me, but it's okay for you. But it's something else entirely to say, it's not for me and it's not for you either. And if you prefer to stay in darkness, that's your privilege. But it's a terrible sin to put out the light so that others can't see either. The sin here is not just in refusing salvation. It's not just in rejecting Jesus. It's not just in rejecting God's word. But it's in trying to keep others from believing. I mean, essentially, Paul's saying, if you prefer to go to hell, that's your business, but please don't try to take others with you. And while it's very easy to go after the Jewish leaders of Paul's day, I'm not convinced things have changed all that much. There are those today in our society, in our culture, who will never attend a worship service, but will do anything they can to stop others from attending. They will never pray in public, but they will th threaten to bring a lawsuit against anyone who does. They won't, won't go to church, but they will try to use the zoning laws to keep churches out of their neighborhoods. Think that doesn't happen in Northern Virginia? That happens here. They won't attend a Bible study, but they'll get irate if their neighbor hosts a small group. They won't accept Christ, but they'll mock a co-worker who comes to faith. They won't lift a finger to save the unborn, but they ridicule those who work in a pregnancy care center. They create an ungodly atmosphere at work and attempt to intimidate Christians into compromise or silence. And such people are all around us today. Not all unbelievers fit that pattern, but some do. Many do. 
and they'll do all they can to actively oppose Christians who are seeking to win others to Christ. And according to this text, they heap up their sins to the limit. Wrath is coming upon them. That word, I think, is uh, most commonly used as both present and future. Although God is patient, his patience has limits. And eventually the storm clouds roll in and finally break over the heads of unbelievers. And although it may be long delayed, the fires of hell will come at last to those who reject our Lord. Please understand, this is God's judgment on any society that rejects his revelation. No nation, no individual can reject him with impunity. No nation can sin forever without reaping divine punishment. But however we interpret these words, these are extremely solemn, sobering words. And yet anti-Semitism cannot find any possible justification in them. No Christian can read the long history of anti-Semitism in the church without feeling profoundly ashamed. Some of the early church fathers, for all their wisdom, still preached some bitter sermons against the Jews. In the Middle Ages, repressive regulations of the Fourth Lateran Council in A.D. 1215 obliged the Jews to live in ghettos and to wear distinctive dress. The first ghettos ever in the world were a place the Jews were sent because a ghetto in Latin is a foundry, a place where metal is made. And nobody wants to live there because it's so hot. And they made the Jews go live there because nobody else wanted to live there. And that's where the term ghetto came from. It wasn't just about a, the bad part of the city or the wrong side of the tracks. It was a hot place that nobody else wanted to live, so we made the Jews live there. During the Crusades, the church failed to restrain the fanaticism of the day, which led to pogroms in Jewish communities where thousands and thousands were killed and hurt. More embarrassing is probably Martin Luther's writings about the Jews just before his death. He was very disillusioned over his hope for the conversion of the Jews. And just shortly before he died, he wrote this just bitter, horrible diatribe against the Jews, which, of course, was later used as justification for what happened in that country against the Jews. There is one slight clarification that might lighten our sense of guilt. Is what some fathers, some medieval churchmen, some reformers are expressing was anti-Judaism, not anti-Semitism. What that means is they're contesting a religion, not a culture or a people. They're writing and arguing out of a theological conviction, not a racial prejudice. It would be similar today to saying that we were opposed to Islam but not to the Muslim people. However, that's a pretty fine line, and it's been stepped over and trampled throughout history. And even today, the Jews are persecuted, though thankfully the persecutors of the Jews are 
for the most part, no longer Christians. Returning now to Paul's statements, we need to remember, we need to balance his statements with the whole of Scripture. First, we need to remember that he himself was a Jew. He gloried in his Jewish ancestry. He longed for the salvation of his people. He declared he was willing to forfeit even his own salvation if only thereby they might be saved. He loved his fellow Jews so much that he would be willing to be eternally damned if it would mean that they would come to faith. Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm going to read the next two verses too, which I didn't put down here. It says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul also taught that God had not entirely cast off his people. Because his gifts and call are irrevocable and he intended to include them again if they did not persist in unbelief. Speaking metaphorically in Romans 11, he says his plan is to graft back into the olive tree that some of the natural branches that were temporarily cut off. If you remember that, he says there is an olive tree and because of unbelief some of those branches are cut off. And he grafts in branches, other branches, that's us, the Gentiles. But it says he will come back and pick up some of those natural branches and regraft them back into the tree. So we have to balance 1 Thessalonians 2 with everything Paul wrote a few years later in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul had not come to believe that all Jews could expect nothing but judgment and that no Jew could be saved. And it's plain from the fact that when he moved from Corinth to Ephesus after he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he continued his policy of evangelizing in the synagogue first. We see that in Acts 19. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when he finally reached Rome, first thing he did is call the leader of the Jews together, his first act and explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Moreover, some were convinced. And if we go to Romans 1, many consider to be Paul's greatest letter. He writes in verses 15 and 16, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Talking too fast. <clears throat> he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. 
Now that's a long way around for two verses. But since they're among the most misinterpreted verses in history, I felt we just needed to take the time to deal with them thoroughly. You know, there is such a thing as true moral guilt. We are a sinner by nature, by birth, and by choice. And if we ever deny this, or soften it, or shy away from it, then we don't believe the Bible no matter what we say. And that truth is badly needed today. And we don't help people by hiding it from them. Only when men and women see that they're under the wrath of God are they then ready to hear about God's great love for them. To paraphrase Billy Graham, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. And once a man or a woman acknowledges their need, then you can tell them about Jesus and how his death and resurrection provides full payment for their sins. And once they know that, they're ready to enter into a personal relationship with God. Suppose you could sum up uh, this passage today by saying there's good news, there's sad news, and there's bad news. The good news is that the Bible is true, and when we believe it, God's Spirit will be active in our lives. The sad news is sometimes those closest to us will oppose God's word and will oppose our faith. And the bad news is that God's wrath comes upon those who reject his word. And sometimes we just don't understand it. We're not sure who's in what category. And that makes it hard. However, sometimes we can learn great things and deep truths from things we don't fully understand. Let me give you an example. You might remember the Robin Williams, Robert De Niro movie called Awakenings. It was a while ago. But it was based on a true story of Dr. Oliver Sacks. <clears throat> he was a neurologist, and in the late 1960s, he discovered the beneficial effects of a new drug called l DOPA, D-O-P-A. He applied this drug to patients who had survived the 1920s epidemic of so-called sleeping sickness. It's a terrible disease that attacked the brain and it left victims in a catatonic state. And he found that by using L-DOPA, some of these patients could come out of this sleep-like state to resume a fairly normal life. And Dr. Sachs has written a number of books over the years, the most famous of which was a collection of case histories dealing with the most difficult neurological challenges that he had faced in his career. And his most famous book was entitled The, Ma the Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Now, some of you may do that from time to time. I don't recommend it. It's not a good thing. But if you don't know the background here, you would think the title was some kind of joke. But it was no joke. Neurologist uh, Oliver Sacks, who, by the way, was a wonderful writer, great way with words, had a strong desire to understand and appreciate the human being that still exists 
despite the neurological damage to the brain. So he treats the reader in this book through 22 amazing tales of the bizarre in this just special book. One of the best was a chapter entitled Rebecca, in which he shows that a person of defective intelligence, extremely low IQ, is still a person with a sense of beauty and with something to give to the world. He generously and brilliantly shows how Rebecca taught him the limitations of a purely clinical approach to uh, diagnosing and treating these diseases. Although she was a, a childlike 19-year-old, and he says, quote, she didn't have the intelligence to find her way around the block. She was unable to open a door with a key. She had an emotional understanding of life superior to many adults. He writes that Rebecca showed him that we pay far too much attention to the defects of patients and far too little to what is still intact and preserved. She said she was tired of the meaningless classes and workshops and odd jobs. What I really love, she said, is the theater. He writes that the theater composed her. When she got on stage, she became a complete person, poised, fluent, with style in each role. This woman seemingly incomplete, unable to effectively communicate on her own, became a whole person easily able to communicate when she was playing the role of someone else. And he discovered that many people with neurological disorders became whole when they were engaged in a process, a story, a drama, a play, music, that that process seemed to give them a structure to follow which overcomes their handicap. I thought it was just remarkable story of learning from something that we don't really understand. The story where the book's title comes from, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, is another amazing tale. This patient's condition had some really funny moments, but overall it was a very sad existence. In his mental condition, he was unable to attach meaning to anything he saw. So he could look at something and he couldn't tell you if it was a book, a chair, a door, or a person, or a hat. He just couldn't put meaning to it. And Dr. Sachs learned that as a result of his condition, he actually did mistake his wife for a hat. And he didn't realize it. And they found out there was nothing wrong with his eyes. It was the brain's processing of the visual information that had gone haywire. Haywire. There's nothing wrong with this man's eyes. But he couldn't truly see in terms of attaching the proper meaning to the things that he saw. And Dr. Sachs coined the term visual agnosia, which means you see, but you don't know what you're seeing. You don't know what it is. You can't attach meaning to it. And I thought that our text today reminds us that far too often people suffer from a kind of spiritual agnosia. They hear the message of the gospel, but it doesn't register with them. They can open the pages of the Bible, but they don't get the meaning. 
They can come to church. They can hear a minister preach a message of salvation in Jesus Christ. But to them, it's just words. The gospel doesn't come in power. It doesn't weigh on them. There's no sense of appropriating and applying the word of God uh, to them personally. There's no wholehearted embrace of God's word as being relevant to them personally. I think this is the great dividing line that runs through the human race. It may appear that two people live in the same town and shop at the same stores and eat the same food and attend the same sporting events and so on and that they're no different. But in reality, there is a vast, immense, eternal difference between a person who merely hears the word and a person who receives it, hears it, receives it, and accepts it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Because ultimately, that's what we need. That's what we need most of all. That's what we need to be giving to each other. Parents for children, children for their friends, small groups to one another, students to roommates. What we need from each other is the word of God. When I'm confused, give me the word of God. When I'm arrogant, give me the word of God. When I'm frightened, give me the word of God. When I'm suffering, give me the word of God. When I'm angry, give me the word of God. And when I am dying, give me the word of God. Minister to me. Anyone who has access to me, give me the word of God. That's what we need to be doing for each other. Whatever our issue, whatever our baggage, we need to be bringing to each other the word of God, and then we need to receive it and accept it. Otherwise, we might as well ask Dr. Sachs to write another book. He could call it The Man Who Mistook His Bible for a Book. Think about that. You need to pray.